When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 106, The Beginning of the End. As stated last time, Churchill, because of his limited grasp of economics, had an equally limited grasp of his and many others' financial futures after the great crash of the New York Stock Exchange. So, it should come as no surprise that when Winston came home in early November of 1929, he was easily distracted from his fall from financial grace by an event that seemed much larger. Indeed, it seemed to the MP from Epping that the world, his world, everything he knew, was being pulled out from under him. Lord Irwin, but who would later be better known as Lord Halifax, the new Viceroy to India, had just recommended that Britain's goal for the subcontinent should be the realization of dominion status. In other words, Lord Irwin was recommending India should be run by Indians sometime in the not-too-distant future. The Labour Party, not unexpectedly, focused only on its voters, supported this idea. Still, this shocked Winston, who could not conceive of an independent India. But the real shock came when Baldwin, the Tory leader, his boss, without consulting any party members, also agreed to this goal. Now, in some ways, this was a tempest in a teapot, because for most of those people outside of the British Empire, its colonial possessions were no longer looked upon with awe. The great war that had shattered so many lives had also shattered many ideas. Ideas that held together the established social structure of the home island, and therefore its holdings as well. Indeed, an impressive level of cynicism and why should I had crept into the British people's everyday lives. Parallel to this general antipathy regarding the empire was the notion of out with the old, but no one quite knew what the new new should be concerning social rank and mobility. Unlike those that held on to the concept of Britain's imperial destiny, that Great Britain derived its preeminence from its very possessions, the majority of the working class, and it would soon be discovered a growing segment of the elites, did not care whether the sun set on the empire or not. Their existence was there on the streets, living day to day. The luckless or downtrodden didn't care about Britain's place in the world, or believe that the world should emulate their betters. They didn't give a fig about those supposed betters unless they were politicians, whose sole job ought to be the protection and care of those on the island. Still, the empire's weakening heart beat on. Wars of conquest were still being waged. Locals in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Palestine were still being subdued. In fact, the British Empire attained its peak in regards to land in 1933. But what new possessions were being colored in on the maps 
were mostly worthless. It was a system of habit and pride. But that very system was being eroded from within. In post-war Britain, nothing was sacred. Baldwin, before losing office in 1929, made a statement, though, that had the right words in the correct order. The heart, the pride, the passion were no longer there. Quote, the British Empire stands firm as a great force for good. It stands in the sweep of every wind by the wash of every sea, unquote. which was still true. It's just that the people who heard this weren't inspired, not anymore. So Baldwin said the words expected of him, but now that he was out of power and very much wanted back in, he was attuned to the people's concern, which had nothing to do with far-flung lands, and thus turned his political ship to catch the strongest wind. And this was the irreverent win he turned into. By the time the Tories lost the vote, the number of members of the Indian Civil Service, once only staffed by British young men from the right schools and families, was down to around 500 for the entire subcontinent. Kipling's passionate view of India was being mocked by the intelligentsia. The Prince of Wales was practically leading the charge in this new age as he went tieless, danced with the wrong girls, to the wrong songs, and wore the wrong pants. His ankles, my God, were visible. He was practically un-British. The new role model for British officers was no longer of a man slightly past his prime, but with thick white hair, a square jaw, and steely eyes. No, instead, it was of David Lowe's fat, jingoistic, self-centered, unthinking, pompous, and preposterous Colonel Blimp. P.G. Woodhouse portrayed the sons of aristocracy as being unable to make their way through any situation, except perhaps to their next drink or dinner menu, and barely at that. The British Raj was treated the same way, just with more feeling. Fewer and fewer applicants tried to enter the service in India, and those already there felt anything but pride. The king himself was not above a negative view by those of the modern world. When George V passed away seven years later from this moment, his last words were, How is the empire? But such was the cynicism that his last sentiment was twisted into, What's on at the empire? As if the latest show was weighing on his princely brow. Another tightly held misconception among those that mattered on the home island was of Britain's superior finished goods and their desirability around the world. The truth was that the other nations were more than competing with what Britain produced, and they were usually cheaper. Indeed, Britain had helped win the war, but had lost its way as it lost the peace. During Winston's five years as the Chancellor, there were those with news worth celebrating, Yet, their very accomplishments were really just more nails in the coffin of the empire. In late 1930, the PMs of the various British states met in London to write out the points of the Statute of Westminster. They had already broken ground, as it were, four years earlier, with a document that read, in part, that the nations were, quote, autonomous communities within the British Empire equal in status, in no way subordinate to each other in any aspect of their domestic and foreign affairs, though united by a common allegiance to the crown, 
and freely associated as members of the British Commonwealth of Nations, unquote. Which begs the question, what more needed to be said? The rest, many of those nations would have answered. So, in 1930, the Dominion leaders gathered to go over the statute, which clearly pressed forward their aims, and to begin the two-year process which was required by Parliament. The author of the resolution, Jan Christian Smuts, though elated, still found it hard to believe this day had come, in part because his document contained the following clauses. The mother country abandoned all authority over the states. Laws passed in the House of Commons did not apply to these entities, and the House could not overrule acts passed by the individual parliaments. But these impressive articles left out one aspect in particular. This was a document for the white Dominion parliaments. It would not help India in any way with its desire for sovereignty. As can be imagined, Ireland was the first to step up, and quoting the words from the very document, claimed itself, quote, a sovereign, independent, and democratic state, unquote. No, Mahatma Gandhi's movement actually started in 1885 by a group of upper-class natives calling their gathering the Indian National Congress before he took it over, was not assisted by this document. If anything, it showed the racial tendencies still prevalent in Britain at the time. However, the Indian National Congress might have never threatened British control if it wasn't for the double standard within society. Simply, no one could ignore or break the rule that native Indians, not even a prince, could be served at places like the Bombay Yacht Club. But when Gandhi took control of the Congress in the early 20th century, its goal became India's freedom. But the critics, and Winston was one of them, that said India was not ready for self-governance had some good points. First, not all of the subcontinent was in British hands. The French and Portuguese held certain vital cities or ports. Next, racism in India was a complex, well-entrenched system set in place a thousand years before the birth of Christ, when Aryans invaded and conquered the darker-skinned natives. So, of the ethnic Caucasoids, Mongoloids, Australoids, and Negroids, the standard rule was the lighter your skin, the higher your place in the caste system a system that seemed as natural to the natives as breathing. But there was more. It would be hard to practice nation-building when 88% of the population was illiterate, when over 200 languages were spoken, and there were literally thousands of varying idols that were worshipped, which were basically sparks that could cause a religious fight or all-out war located around every corner and on every street. And as some members of certain religions were willing to kill instantly if something offensive was said to them, there were additional, although innocently started, potential wars on every pair of lips. All this meant the Hindus and Muslims, as they lived and worked in close proximity, were one step away from being at each other's throats constantly. It was this caste system that remained at Churchill's and many others, strongest reason to deny India dominion status. Indeed, the very nature of the system divided into four castes, the Brahmins, scholars, and priests, the Kshatriyas, 
the soldier and administrators, the Vaishis, merchants, and the Sutras, servants and manual laborers, negated even the first step to democracy. Then there are the subcasts, and there are hundreds, maybe thousands of these. One caste would make your bed, another would wash the dishes, a third would dry them. But only the untouchables, about 60 million people in India, so designated at the time, the truly outcasts, could take out your garbage. How was this land of many millions to come together and effectively run their state with all these divisions separating them? But that was Gandhi's problem. The British were focused on what to do with the gem in their crown of an empire. In 1927, after many delays, a committee was put together to investigate and propose a resolution to the main question of India. Two years later, the committee, staffed by not one single Indian, produced their report, and within the thick ream of paper, not one mention of dominion status was ever brought up. That was when this issue, most gray, was divided into its black and white component colors, as Lord Irwin, read Halifax, categorically stated that as the new viceroy to India, his goal for the subcontinent was its liberty. To then prove his sincerity, another committee would be organized, but this one would have natives sitting on it. As expected, a tirade of attacks came from the right. Lord Birkenhead verbally assaulted Lord Irwin in the House, followed by Lord Redding. The Tory leader, Baldwin, even had his common sense and integrity openly questioned during the storm. In fact, those closest to him threatened to resign. But Baldwin stuck to his guns. Not out of integrity or a desire to do the right thing, but he firmly believed that the voters, the very people who could put him back in power, just didn't care about India the way the previous generation had. Also, on a more practical side, Baldwin, as the leader, controlled the party whips and the men who made up the party machinery. And they all owed him their positions. So he went about and reminded all those men who he was, who they were, and how they got there, and what to do if they wanted to stay there. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com.
As October 29th finished up and November appeared, Baldwin had survived the worst of the storm. But then Winston landed at Southampton on November 5th. As for Lord Irwin, he already knew Winston's view on India, as it was put to him point-blank when Churchill said, I am quite satisfied with my views on India, and I don't want them disturbed by any bloody Indians. But honestly, Winston hadn't thought much of the subcontinent since he departed there some 30 years ago, and from then until now, his life had been rather full and hectic, even if it was of his own doing. No, to say that Winston thought much of the Empire's main holding would be going too far, but what he did believe or feel was palpable. Simply, the man who loved the Empire copied Queen Victoria's attitude about India and the rest of the Empire when she said, I think it very unwise to give up what we hold. And that was that. Besides, Great Britain, or in this case, Britain, got its greatness from its Empire from its possessions. One would have to be daft to Winston's mind to start a process that would reduce the British Empire to its home island. After all, pride has its place. The other component to this, of course, was Winston's prejudice, and it was his lifelong companion. It was simply the context he grew up in, and within the circles he now moved about, racism, not that the word was used yet, was fashionable. Yet, one of the man's redeeming qualities, and he had many, was his willingness, nay, his built-in desire to revisit problems over and over in his mind. Normally, the first go-around was an emotional response. The second or third, yes, there were most times a third pass, was either a more practical, even kind approach, or, quite frankly, a decision based upon political reality. So, as he readied himself to take on Baldwin over his sole decision on such a large issue, other concepts, as touching India, opened up to him. Yes, Winston could see India in a different role in the future. Perhaps the colony could rule itself except for things that were clearly beyond its current ability, like defense, communication, and certainly foreign affairs. But the one issue that stopped Winston cold and when, in this frame of mind, he was thinking of India, was the violence. The Hindus and Muslims' hatred for each other, not to mention the endless tit-for-tat mentality, led to violence that more than matched what had happened in Ireland, and the number of casualties throughout the colony swamped those of Britain's neighbor. Then the violence came to roost on Lord Irwin's front doorstep, as extremists tried to kill him as his train entered Delhi. Churchill did not hesitate to congratulate, although rather sarcastically, Irwin on his surviving. But the violence only continued to grow, as eight British officers were killed when Bengalese stormed an arsenal. Soon after, another clash caused the death of 30 more people, a mixture of Hindus and Muslims. Later, after a Muslim terrorist was executed, the Hindus in the area, feeling that justice was still wanting, rioted, and killed just over 300 Muslims before the sun went down that day. Churchill took this rather bloody opportunity to point out the obvious to all asunder. Quote, because it is believed that we are about to leave the country, the struggle for power is now beginning between the Muslims and Hindus, 
The feud is only at its beginning. Unquote. On a side note, years later, there were those that claimed the freeing of India did not lead to any massive murdering, as Churchill was now warning. But this is not true. Eighteen years later, after Winston offered up his dire warning, as the Raj ended and British soldiers were leaving Bombay, just over two million Hindus and Muslims were slaughtered within a six-month period. When Winston returned on November 5th, Clementine told him his drawing room at Chartwell was full of worried MPs. They worried over Baldwin speaking for them without consulting them, and they disagreed with what he said. They worried over the empire's future, but also their party's more immediate future. Winston smiled and told them not to worry. He would speak for them. He would stand up to Baldwin alone if necessary. Things would turn out for the best. But at that moment, Winston Churchill began his own slippery slope that would end with him entering the political wilderness. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So I'm pretty sure, it depends on how much uh, detail I want to go to, but I'm pretty sure that the next episode, 107, will be the last uh, Churchill episode. Um, it didn't dawn on me. I really I really went back and looked. I couldn't believe it. I've done 20-something uh, episodes on Churchill. I just got so caught up. I mean, how many times can a person die, almost die, in one episode? Like three, two or three times, and that just went on and on, and I was just amazed by his life. And, of course, we haven't finished it yet, and the best was saved for the end, if you know what I mean, because of World War II and, and all the things that was required of him. So I just got caught up in it, and I loved every second of it. And, of course, um, I'll probably go in the future cover the rest of them just because it was too amazing, especially the time in the political wilderness. So anyway, so that is coming to an end, and I just wanted to um, let all of you know. Uh, a couple of people I want to thank. Um, I got a donation from Steve B. in Plymouth, England. He had a special request, which I will honor with the last episode of Churchill. Um, I have some new members I'd like to... Um, to thank, I have Ed R. in San Jose, California, Christopher B. in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, Bradley L. in Spring Hill, Tennessee, Michael G. in Mesa, Arizona, Michael C. in Valley Park, Missouri. So thank you and hello to the newest members. I think there's like 32 membership episodes. I hope you enjoy them. And I also want to thank John W. for his email um, about some stuff that's coming up with Operation Barbarossa. So, John, thank you very much for that. Um, and then just to let you know, again, you, you got to hurry up and send me your email because when I do the last Churchill, uh, and I'm pretty sure this next episode is the last one, I'm going to do another contest and give away five of the uh, Churchill mugs. So hurry up and send me your thing. Just send me an email to with the, with the word contest in the, uh, in the um, subject and just send it to podcast at gmail.com. Send me those as soon as you can. I know a lot of people hoard these and listen to them later. So that's why I've been trying to stretch it out to give you more time. Because, you know, it's always fun to enter a contest to see if you win or not. But I just want to say hello to the latest people who have entered. Um, there's And some of the, you, these, I don't know where you're from. I apologize. Uh, there's Eric B., John G., who actually put Roar in his email, so it certainly stood out. Um, then there's Tyler C. from Surrey, British Columbia. Stevie M. from Portsmouth, England. 
Philip P., Brian A. from Dexter, Michigan, Barry D. from London, Ontario, and Kevin B. So good luck to everyone. Just send me those emails as, as fast as you can. And uh, we'll get my daughters in here. We'll do the contest again. And please don't forget to check out my other podcast, even though I don't know how I'm trying to do two at the same time. Um, but check out it's just the Caesar of the Life of Caesar podcast. And I'm doing that with Cameron Riley, um, the man who was one half of the team of the Napoleon podcast, which you should definitely check out. That was my very first podcast that I listened to. It is absolutely amazing. They did a great job on that. So he and I are doing the life of Caesar. We're up to um, 10. I think we've done 10 episodes so far, and we've just gotten to the point where Caesar's become consul. And we're giving away coffee mugs and T-shirts on that as well. So please check it out. You can find it on iTunes or lifeofcaesar.com. So I am going to now work very hard in getting two membership episodes out before the end of the month, as promised. And then we'll jump back into and do the last uh, Churchill and then go back to the war. So send me those emails to enter the contest. Thank you, everyone who supports the show, the members, the donations, the coffee mugs. I really do appreciate it all. Um, the goal is, and I haven't brought this to my wife. Maybe one of you could do it for me. Is the goal is by the end of this year to be podcasting full time because there's other um, subjects and that I want to cover. I just, I just don't have the time. But so the goal is by Christmas, I'm doing this full time, which we, you'll see a huge upswing in the amount that I put out in the frequency. So that's the goal. We'll see what happens. So as always, I will see you as soon as I can with the next episode. And until then, take care, everyone. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.